Welcome to The Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. Robert Pollack is a psychiatrist in Southwest Florida who has been using ketamine for treatment-resistant depressions. With all the discussions of it going around lately, it's important that we learn as much as we can about it from someone who was actually using it. Dr. Pollack has kindly agreed to discuss this with us, and thank you so much for being with us this morning. We need to point out that ketamine, though widely discussed and used, is still not FDA approved as an intervention. So this interview is for information only. Please discuss this potential treatment modality with your provider if you think that you would benefit from ketamine. Okay, sir, again, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Give us a history of ketamine. How did it begin? How did it become such a topic of hot psychiatric discussion? Well, like most things in medicine, somebody started on the right thing the wrong way. This is very similar to the beginning of antidepressants. In 1951, we stumbled into the treatment of depression. In approximately 1970, we developed an anesthetic agent called ketamine, which was really good for cows and horses. They discovered it was also good for people and children. It, it was a potent drug, and nobody had any real problems with it. We just came out with better ones. It hung around. They used it in emergency rooms from time to time. Pediatric oral surgeons like it because it's easy to control in tiny doses. The usual things happened in the United States, and it became a drug of abuse with what made it famous. 70s and 80s, people were getting stoned on ketamine because it was very cheap, easy to find, and because of its short half-life of two and a half hours, it became easy to snort, shoot, rub in, inject, and it was there. And now fate stepped in, and there was a, a young fellow in an emergency room, agitated, suicidal. They didn't know what to do with him. It was a small place. At least give him some rest. Gave him a big belt of ketamine. He went to sleep, woke up four hours later, and he and his depression were no longer buddies. And he went home. Unfortunately, five days later, he came back, as did the depression. They gave him another shot, and it didn't work. But it lit the eyes of many, many people around the country. They said, well, wait a minute. We have something here. Within about four or five years, they were able to figure out that it was a dose timing event. And lo and behold, they found people getting better. And they went back and took a look at a lot of people who had had surgery. said, you know, I felt really good after that, and that went away. Put two and two together, and here we have a medication that helps depression that's not what we're used to. The next question was, is how do we give it when, what do we do? They looked into psychiatry, they do a lecture shock, three one week, three the next, and then they reevaluate. So why don't we try that? They did. They eventually got to the dose of 0.5 milligrams per kilogram, given IV, and lo and behold, people were getting better. The rates around the country are somewhere between 72 and 75 percent of people who respond positively from an emotional standpoint because of the fact that it's renally excreted, so you have to make sure people have reasonably good renal function and you have to take medical precautions that you would using that kind of medicine. But it's two and a half hour half-life, and it's gone in four or five hours. There's not a lot to worry about. I worry less about this and other medicines that we use that hang around. Do we have any sense of how it works? We have a lot, a lot of interesting sense, and it's maturing. Our knowledge base continues to grow. The initial thought was that it inhibited the NMDA, the N-methyl-D-aspartate receptor that tends to hold glutamate down. Now, we know that glutamate is the good guy. So you give ketamine, and we thought NMDA receptor is inhibited. Glutamate comes out, it increases neuroplasticity, increases neurogenesis, increases BDNF levels, increases neuromodulation, increases dendritic activity, and people get better. However, 
there's more to it than that. There's NMDA that's inhibited, but then the AMPA receptors are increased. So now we have two effects, both of which have the same impact on ketamine and neuroplasticity and neurogenesis. Now they're talking about something called a shank protein, and there's not enough literature on that at this point for us to really understand that. But we're taking very good looks at it because it's a medicine that has had a tremendous impact in psychiatry and if used properly, is reasonably safe and fast. What are the things that keeps popping up? And you noted that with ECT, that had to be repeated. So ketamine apparently has to be repeated, but like ECT, or is it like ECT in the sense that there's a point where it holds? They don't need any more treatments for ECT, although, just to be fair, there are people who need maintenance ECT. Is there a point where a person does not have to come back for ketamine treatments, or does it also require some sort of maintenance? we look at our population, they, they seem to break down in different groups. We have one group that goes through their initial treatment of six. That group has stayed on their psychotropic medication, and they do fine. I, I have them come back for a visit of three months, and they don't get a follow-up or a booster, and they're gone. And I feel from time to time if there are patients in the office, we give everybody PHQ-9 to continue as long as they'll keep them into it. We see it holds. About a third of the people come in for a booster one treatment every three months, and that seems to hold them well. Another group, and I can't differentiate them, that sees them in once a month. And the only reason that we continue it that way is they don't do well with antidepressant medicine. They just can't tolerate them, and they can tolerate this. Some of the newer stuff that's coming out on the market, one experiment right now using nasal ketamine at the same time that they're starting antidepressants. The procedural difficulty with that is that how do you know you have the right antidepressant? You have to be clever enough to get a genomic assessment and bring the odds down, at least going with the right medicine. So they're using it contemporaneously to basically to get a better response. However, many of us are sitting there saying, well, wait a minute, go back to the star group profile, which if an antidepressant stops working, that we use one of the seven augmentation agents. Maybe ketamine can be used as another augmentation agent. You have somebody who's on prestige and they're doing great for two years and suddenly they're not. Now, normally we would turn to Abilify, Rexulti, Cycalopram, etc. What happens if we just give ketamine and see if that has the same effect as the other augmentation agent? We have another tool, sort of like the Swiss Army knife. It's got a lot of different things to it. You just need to learn how to apply them. There are, in most magazines nowadays, lots of local medically-oriented magazines, ketamine clinics. And they're not all, from what I can see, they're not, they're not all run by psychiatrists. So what should a person look for? Is there a, shall we say, more or less standard protocol, as you began to discuss? And how would someone get a good idea? They may not absolutely know 100%, but a reasonable idea that where they're going follows really good standard of care protocol as it evolves. First of all, I believe that the treatment of depression should be left to depression experts with other psychiatrists. When I talk to anesthesiologists and other folks, they don't get the psychiatric part. They tend to have their protocols, which is sometimes progressive doses, and they end up overdosing people, and they come in, and they look awful. And eventually, you clean them out, and I end up having to use an alternative treatment rather than ketamine. You know, a good, solid psychiatrist who has a good background and understanding of biology, at least of psychopharmacology. Protocols are fairly consistent now. Using 0.5 milligrams per kilogram and 100 cc's of saline, 
42 minutes, the patient stays around for 45 minutes, and then they go home with a family member. When we administer, they have to be monitored, their blood pressure is monitored, get their oxygen saturation, and we take their vitals every five minutes while they're there. The physician, i.e. the psychiatrist, should be within eyeball or at least walking distance. In our office, it's doors away from my private office, and I walk in all the time. Everybody's very used to me coming in and seeing, and you talk to them. There'll be some anecdotal evidence that says people who have most dramatic experience during their first treatment are destined to get better. I think that that's true to a degree, but I haven't seen it as a universal yet. The follow-up also determines where you go. A lot of our folks come in from the outside, so we have to decide, okay, who's going to do what? This is what we want to do. PHQ every two weeks so we can see what's going on. I just learned that when those numbers start to jiggle a little bit, call them up, come in, and we have and we have options that have come up in the event that ketamine doesn't continue to work. So that that 72% may actually get better. Do you think it's going to be a first-line treatment someday, or is it always going to be an augmenter, or is it always, do you think, going to be for treatment-resistant depressions? I think what we're going to see is antidepressants that are more glutaminergic. Um, I think we're recognizing that the monoamine theory may not seem to be all an end-all. Depression may be a multifaceted illness, and for those patients who didn't do well with medicine, go, yeah, you're right. And now we have other options. With the very quiet literature, you're seeing people talking about different agents. They're looking for miracles, but sometimes they're just looking for other agents. And right now in research, that's what you're saying. And how do we capitalize on the information that we have? I do have some folks who come and say, I'm tired of medicine. If this works, I want to stay on it. I'll stay with my boosters and we'll go. Right now, you have to hedge your bet a little bit. Apparently, beta burst stimulation, which is the, the recent next generation of transcranial magnetic stimulation, seems to be very synergistic with ketamine. Folks who do badly with ketamine seem to do well with CBS and vice versa. We just wrote up two patients like that. One who did badly with CBS did great with ketamine, one who did terribly with ketamine did great with CBS. Not quite sure of all of the nuances of that, but we know there is a spectrum now of depression that we're seeing that we can now treat. And if we say that these become first-line drugs, I remember when monoamine oxidase inhibitors were only for the extremely ill. And according to Dr. Nemiroff, it's the best medicine out there. And I think you agree, it's pretty darn good. Such an interesting concept here. I actually happened to have been in a meeting earlier this week when a local psychiatrist and we were talking about we do not have the cause for all depressions. And the monoamine oxidases, and well, the, the whole monoamine theory of depression just may be inadequate, but it's the only one for which we had tools. And so it became, shall we say, the gold standard. Now we're seeing something else coming in, the glutamate system. Could, could you explain just in a, in a brief manner what glutamate is? And people may have not heard of it. It's a nice little protein. It sits around in cells. It's like a power pack is the best way to look at it. I think we backed into it by by finding out stuff about BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor. We know that BDNF 
fluctuates based on depression. Individuals who have depression have lower than usual BDNF levels. So the question was raised by one time, well, can you synthesize BDNF and then give it to folks? We're trying. That's going on in, in lab. BDNF has to come from somewhere and have to have a battery. And basically, glutamate is the battery. We know that depression has decreased in neuroplasticity. It has a decrease in neurogenesis. We know that the dendrites don't work real well. We know the neuromodulation levels are done. The hippocampus, the cingular gyrus are skinny. They don't seem to be well nourished. And yet when you give them glutamate, all these things get better. So what controls glutamate? Well, go back to the other conversation. Is it the NMD that's there? Is it the AMP? Is it tank protein? Is there something else that I think? The fact that drug manufacturers are now putting a lot of money into medications that are looking at the glutamate system, yeah. <laughs> This nice, happy protein is going to find its way all over the place. Fascinating. Now, in terms of just the mechanics, is there an accepted age range? Could we give this to someone who is 85 years old? Do we have any data about that? Or to the flip side, the pediatrics? I haven't used it in anybody under 19 only because my practice is with adults, and I haven't seen any really good literature on how teenagers will handle it, so I don't. I have had several people in their 80s who have done marvelously with it. In fact, they tend to do better than the younger people. I think they have more interesting memories. We had one lady who was 86 years old and who had the worst ketamine-related experience during her first treatment. I heard her voice raised. I walked in, and I, her eyes were sort of wide open, and she stared at me, and she, she started crying. She was upset, and you do what a psychiatrist does. You know, you sit there, and you sit there next to them. It's like bringing somebody down after a bad trip from the 60s and 70s. And once you connect, you start talking, and then there are memories, and there are memories that she, she discussed. And by the time we were done, she was sitting around with a smile on her face saying, I hadn't thought about Woodstock in years. So tell me about the whole thing. She said, it was an awful experience, but you know what? I also haven't felt this good in 25 years. And so she came through her six treatments. Her mood got progressively better. She followed up with several boosters for a year and then relocated. And I just sent this wonderful lady off on a cruise for her 90th birthday. Did very well. When it is not used properly, when it is used for, as it is known on the street, amongst other names, a special K, does it do brain damage? You know, a little bit is good, a lot is not good. Do we have any data along those lines? From the street experience that many of us have had, a lot is usually not good. When I talk to paramedics, talk to people in the emergency room, how many folks don't do well at all? When you open your benefit clinic, the first people who come in are people who run out of street connections and they want a shot. And they say, well, there's not enough here to do anything. Yeah, okay, I'm the wrong place. But I do think when you go too high, you get too much stimulation. And I, and I do think there's some type of shutoff mechanism, whether it's the DMP or whether there's a feedback to the NMDA. I don't know. I keep that dose religiously under control. Sometimes you have some significantly large people, and you have to understand that 0.5 milligrams per kilogram is not going to make it. you got to go to 0.6. And sometimes when they're little tiny people, you got to go to 0.4 and 0.3. Which is knowing how to titrate and getting genomic studies so you can look at the cytochrome P450 system and get a sense of where you're going. Absolutely. Now that you mentioned the genomics, a lot of really interesting stuff coming out on the genomics, pointing out who does better with ketamine than don't. Looking at the cytochromes, they've got a lot of stuff on the 2B6, the 
familiar feeling, frankly. (laughs) Several pharmaceutical companies are really researching, where are we going to be? When do you think it'll be an FDA-approved entity? Of course, knowing how things go, that could be variable beyond prediction at times. But is it really coming down the road? Are we going to, you think, have a ketamine-based medication soon? Here's an interesting feature. The AMA has put out a paper, the APA has put out a paper, and the FDA has put out a paper saying it's currently one of the best treatments for depression. Given that, you would think that somebody could figure out what's necessary for this to be an FDA-approved medicine. Now, it's an FDA-approved medicine. It's a Schedule three anesthetic. It's no different than when Mexium. When these pills started coming out, they were just originally off-label uses of other things. So you just have to decide what makes it safe to use, what are the parameters, and what do you need to do to be qualified to give it. Doctors need to be doctors. More and more people are using it, and let's treat our patients. So we are at perhaps the next chapter in the history of psychiatry and our tools. It sounds very exciting. I reiterate, if it's something that you think is appropriate to you, be careful who you read, talk to a real doctor, and get the best advice that you can. I know this sounds very expected in terms of a warning, but just be mature about it. There are doctors out there who do have protocols that are sound and safe, and that's the take-home message give you the information. That's what we hope we have done. And then be thorough before you just go to somebody who is going to give you ketamine. Dr. Pollock, thank you so much. A huge topic, very difficult to condense. We are finding new mechanisms for the very old and nasty problem of depression. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you very much.